welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Welcome to September, everybody. I trust this podcast finds you well. I got a handful of cases for you this week, but before I do, remember when Ira and I discussed Malik VDHS two weeks ago? Well, Mr. Malik emailed me. I had hoped he would. And Mr. Malik relayed that actually, he believed that the whole issue in his case was not that border officers believed that his name was similar to an arms dealer, but that actually one of his clients' names was similar to an arms dealer. The Fifth Circuit was pretty unclear about the whole issue in its decision. But if that's true, and if border officers were really directly targeting the attorney-client relationship, that might be even worse. What a case that was. While we're at it, it seems like EYR is going through a bit of a hiring spree at the moment. Congratulations to all the new immigration judges and soon-to-be new IJs wherever you are, but totally in the United States. And remember, while you may not be able to have a union currently, no one can take away your right to listen to podcasts. Here are your cases. Our first case is Puma via Zaruma v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on August 30th, 2023. This case is about credibility. And boy, howdy does it start off with a bang, explaining that the Second Circuit has long recognized the, quote, inherent limitations in asylum applicants' willingness and ability to express their fear of persecution during border interviews, end quote. The court also started off with explaining that, quote, persons fleeing state-sponsored abuse in their home countries may travel weeks to seek asylum in the United States, arriving travel-worn, apprehensive of governmental authorities, and lacking English fluency, access to legal counsel, or knowledge of our immigration laws. It is therefore unsurprising that some asylum seekers feel intimidated, reluctant, or confused during the interviews with Border Patrol officers that occur immediately after their arrival. 
Moreover, because a border interview is not an interview for asylum, the interviewing officers might not pose questions aimed at developing the details of an asylum claim or record a verbatim transcript of the interviewee's responses, end quote. That's how the case begins. Gonna be a good one. And of course, yes, it's about perceived discrepancies that Ms. Pomavia Zaruma did back in 2013. She's from Ecuador and came to the United States at 19 years old after a month of traveling up through Central America. She was scared when she was caught by Border Patrol at the U.S. border, and the next day she sat for her border interview. As longtime listeners know, the transcript from those interviews aren't transcripts at all. Rather, they're summaries created by border officers. In that summary, Ms. Pomavia Zaruma apparently said that she came to the U.S., quote, to reside and seek employment and continue my education, end quote. She also apparently said that she didn't have a fear of persecution or torture in Ecuador. But she applied for asylum and related relief when placed in removal proceedings shortly thereafter. Why she then underwent a more official credible fear interview, as this decision explains, is beyond me, but that did happen according to the decision, and I guess it was when she was in removal proceedings? That doesn't make sense to me, but maybe that happened. But anyway, in that credible fear interview with a USCIS asylum officer a year later, Ms. Pomavia Zaruma told a detailed story of how she feared a man in Ecuador who had raped and sexually abused her for years. Quote, and although she reported the man to authorities and he was convicted of rape, the sentence against him was never carried out, end quote. When asked about the border interview by the credible fear officer, Ms. Pomavia's Zaruma said that she didn't really understand the border officer as most of it was in English, and she was scared and had been hit when apprehended by border officers the day before. At the eventual merits hearing in immigration court, five years post-entry in 2018, Ms. Pomavia Zaruma testified consistently with the credible fear interview, but not, of course, with the border interview. The IJ wasn't having it, and found Ms. Pomavia Zaruma not credible. In addition to the obvious discrepancies, the IJ believed, quote, her testimony that the interview was conducted in English was simply unbelievable, because the record of the interview stated that it was conducted in Spanish, and because border interviews are generally conducted in the interviewee's native language, end quote. The BIA affirmed. The Second Circuit did not. Because, see, in Ram Samiachire v. Ashcroft from two decades ago, quote, when the inconsistencies underlying an adverse credibility finding arise from an applicant's statement in a border interview, the immigration judge must closely examine the border interview to ensure it is sufficiently reliable to merit consideration, end quote. End quote. If an applicant was fleeing persecution in her home country, she may be wary of governmental authorities and perceive questions from Border Patrol officers as coercive or threatening, end quote. Full of quotes, this one. For this reason and others, the Second Circuit laid out a framework in Ram Samiachire that is as follows. A border interview record is, quote, inherently less reliable End quote. If one, the record merely summarizes or paraphrases the non-citizen's statements rather than includes a verbatim account or transcript, and that's like always the case, right? Two, the questions asked are not designed to elicit the details of an asylum claim, or the officer fails to ask follow-up questions that would aid the non-citizen in developing his or her account. 
Three, the non-citizen appears to have been reluctant to reveal information to the immigration officer because of prior interrogation sessions or other coercive experiences in his or her home country. Or, remember, or. Four, the non-citizen's answers to the questions posed suggest that the non-citizen did not understand English or the translations provided by the interpreter. There's your big standard, and it seems like there's lots of room for litigation there. Some later Second Circuit decisions have watered down a bit whether those requirements are ironclad, but no more. The court laid down a categorical rule, quote, An immigration judge may not rely on a border interview to find an asylum applicant not credible without first considering the Ram Samia chair factors if the record indicates that those factors may be relevant, end quote. Ooh-wee. Such was the case here for multiple reasons, a finding the Second Circuit reached by both reviewing the border interview transcript thing itself and by considering Ms. Poma Villazaruma's later testimony. For example, she was, quote, not warned that she should be fully forthcoming about any fear or history of persecution lest she lose her chance to obtain asylum, end quote. I bet that's the case in most cases. With the factors evidently present, the IJ erred in considering the border interview transcript thing at all, it seems, without analyzing first whether it warranted consideration. Presumption of regularity with DHS documents? Completely undiscussed, and so I guess not relevant. So it was remanded, despite actually the fact that yes, it seems that a translator was used at the border interview. Therefore, congratulations Ruben S. Kerbin for petitioner and congratulations to all non-citizen practitioners in the Second Circuit. And that is Pomavia Zaruma v. Garland. Next is Trejo Gamez v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on August 30th, 2023. This case is really about jurisdiction. In the non-LPR cancellation of removal and ineffective assistance of counsel context. Too short a decision and too tangential for the ineffective assistance of counsel music. It's only a one and a half page majority decision. But it's published. Essentially, the Eighth Circuit held that notwithstanding Patel, it retains jurisdiction to review a denial of a motion to reopen based on a claim that prior counsel committed ineffective assistance of counsel in presenting a non-LPR cancellation of removal case, and to review a motion to reopen that seeks to present additional hardship evidence. And that's the case, the Eighth Circuit explained, even though the Supreme Court's Patel decision would divest the circuit of most, if not all, review of the merits of an actual non-LPR cancellation of removal denial itself. Although not cited by the Eighth Circuit, that holding, while it aligns with prior Eighth Circuit precedent, seems to conflict with the Eleventh Circuit's recent decision in Flores v. U.S. Attorney General, discussed on episode 154. Rather, the Eighth Circuit explained, the abuse of discretion standard applies. That is, to succeed on a motion to reopen based on a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel, a non-citizen must show ineffective assistance that prejudiced the non-citizen. Restated, the non-citizen needs to show that he or she might have won with effective assistance. 
Prejudice is actually a bit of a different standard throughout the circuits, and this decision doesn't lay out the official standard in the Eighth Circuit, so I hesitate to say what that standard is with specificity. Because in any event, the court found no prejudice here. The Eighth Circuit doesn't think that the new evidence discovered, or better counsel, would have likely led to a grant of non-LPR cancellation of removal for Mr. Trejo Gamez. It's an exceptionally short majority decision. Judge Colton concurred to say that although prior Eighth Circuit precedent on the jurisdiction issue is binding, he thinks it's wrong, and I guess should probably be reviewed in bonk. And Judge Colton reads the Fifth and Ninth Circuits as agreeing, which actually, if memory serves from the decisions he cites, appears correct. So that's a bigger gong than we thought. Ah, Patel. Mr. Trejo has therefore lost his case. And while on the subject of ineffective assistance of counsel, if ever so tangentially, At the top of the week this week, in USA v. Armendariz, the Fifth Circuit held that it is not ineffective assistance of counsel for a criminal defense attorney to tell a lawful permanent resident before plea agreement that it is, quote, very likely, end quote, that she will be deported if she pleads guilty to a crime. Even where actually a guilty plea will lead to deportation with certainty. The difference between very likely and certainty isn't enough to be ineffective assistance to the Fifth Circuit. Ineffective assistance of counsel aside, I'd be derelict in my duty as a crimmigration attorney if I conceded there was ever certainty of removal when crimmigration is at play. Maybe I'd say it if I was a criminal defense attorney, though. And that is Trejo Gamez v. Garland. Moving on to Ulu v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on September 1st, 2023. This case is about credibility. Mr. Ulu is from Kyrgyzstan and remained in the United States longer than his tourist visa permitted. After his visa expired, he affirmatively applied for asylum with USCIS, but he was denied and he ended up in immigration court. His story is as follows, and it's particularly interesting as I believe it's the first case we've had on the podcast from Kyrgyzstan. Mr. Ulu is from the Kyrgyz capital of Bishkek, where he lived with his wife and two teenage children. Quote, he became more involved in politics in 2010 when he joined Respublika, one of several opposition parties in Kyrgyzstan. In 2012, he saw news reports of a new deal Kyrgyzstan officials signed giving Kumtor, a Canadian company, the rights to a gold mine. He believed the deal was a corrupt giveaway of national resources to a foreign company, end quote. He attended a protest in 2013, which was broken up with tear gas. He was taken to a police station and beaten, where he had cellophane placed over his head until he passed out. He was kept in a room with chemicals and then made to sign a document saying that he wouldn't leave the country. The day after he was released, police gave him a visit and brought him back to the station. They did terrible things to him again and he woke up in the hospital. He left for the U.S. on a tourist visa two months later. While in the United States, quote, the Kyrgyz government found him guilty of organizing mass riots and sentenced him in absentia to five years in prison, end quote. That's the gist of the story that Mr. Ulu told. USCIS denied his claim and he testified at an immigration court hearing in 2018. He 
He brought corroborating letters and medical records confirming his injuries, as well as, it appears, some documents about his in absentia conviction. But the immigration judge denied his claims, believing that Mr. Ulu, quote, made shifting statements about key events, end quote, from his story. Also, some of the letters apparently conflicted with his testimony, and the immigration court couldn't verify the authenticity of the criminal documents that Mr. Ulu submitted, and so gave them diminished weight. The BIA affirmed, and the Seventh Circuit did as well. There were inconsistencies, recognized the court. Now true, inconsistencies need not go to the heart of a claim to support an adverse credibility finding anymore, but also, an adverse credibility finding shouldn't be based on, quote, inconsistencies that are minor, concern irrelevant details in the context of an applicant's broader claim of persecution, or where the immigration judge failed to consider reasonable explanations offered, end quote. So there is a framework. It's not just any inconsistency, at least in the Seventh Circuit. Now, of course, by the time of his immigration court hearing, Mr. Ulu had, quote, recounted his experience at three key points, end quote, in his asylum application, at his asylum interview, and in his immigration court hearing, all spanning many years. Lots of room for inconsistencies to arise. These ones that were present explain the Seventh Circuit are, quote, serious and go directly to the extent of his persecution and the threat he could face if he were sent back home, end quote. For example, Mr. Ulu didn't mention his torture at the police station the day of the protest until his immigration court hearing. Also, in his asylum application, he actually said that a militia took him to the police station the next day, not government authorities themselves. That's important and therefore can serve as an adverse credibility basis because, of course, asylum and convention against torture protection generally require a government connection. There were other issues, too. This wasn't like other cases where the main basis for the adverse credibility finding was an unreliable note of an asylum officer in non-transcript form. For example, explain the court. But the court recognized that, quote, there can be limits to a person's recollection, end quote, and that suffering trauma might affect an asylum applicant or other non-citizen's ability to testify consistently. The Seventh Circuit seems to be identifying this as totally an argument that can be made to avoid an adverse credibility finding in the Seventh Circuit. The argument just wasn't developed sufficiently this time around. So too, corroborating evidence can save inconsistent testimony. And the Seventh Circuit is a bit concerned with how the IJ weighed and kind of disregarded much of the evidence. The court explained that a judge shouldn't reject corroborating documents just because the IJ found the non-citizen not credible. That flips the role of corroborating evidence on its head a bit, reasoned the court. Corroborating evidence can, in some circumstances, save inconsistent testimony. But the problem is, to the Seventh Circuit, is that many of those corroborating letters introduced discrepancies of their own. And the medical evidence doesn't explain why the harm occurred, which of course is necessary to win on an asylum-type claim. The why is vital. For all of these reasons, the Seventh Circuit ruled against Mr. Ulu. And that is Ulu v. Garland. This podcast is sponsored by Journey Business Plans. Journey is the leading business immigration plan writing company in the United States. 
10 years. And they know immigration. Heck, they started as an E2 company themselves. Journey prides itself on its responsiveness and overall customer service, preparing business plans for E2, EB2 NIW, L1, EB5, and much more. If you don't yet know about Journey and don't want to listen to just me, ask your colleagues. Or even better, try them out. Visit www.journey.com and use promo code REVJOURNEY30 for a 30% discount on your first business plan. That's R-E-V-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y-3-0. Or click on the link in the show notes. Returning with Al Hassani v. DHS, published by the Third Circuit on August 30th, 2023. This is a complicated decision about naturalization. It's in federal court because after a lawful permanent resident applies with USCIS to naturalize and is denied, there is a federal right of action to get de novo review of naturalization eligibility by a federal district court judge, eventually. Naturalization and citizenship is that important in the United States. That's what naturally occurred here. Mr. Al-Hassani is from Syria. He worked there as a human rights lawyer and married a Miss Khalili in 2003. Miss Khalili is from Morocco, and when she got pregnant with the couple's son, she moved back to that country. Then Syria put a travel ban on Mr. Al-Hassani because of his human rights work, meaning that he was unable to see his wife and his son in Morocco. Then in 2005, Mr. Al-Hassani married another Syrian, a Miss Jauni. But he did not divorce Miss Khalili first. That's because he didn't have to under Syrian law. Then it appears that Mr. Al-Hassani was imprisoned for what looks like BS political persecution. His wife didn't like it because it jeopardized their future and safety. He spent four years in prison, it seems, in Syria. He fled Syria shortly thereafter. His second wife did not join him. He was paroled into the United States and eventually granted permanent resident status, perhaps as a refugee? Unclear. Already a wild case, right? Mr. Al-Hassani then petitioned for his first wife, Miss Khalili, and his son to join him in America, because he learned that they weren't doing so well in Morocco. After a little bit in the U.S., they left again for Morocco, because Miss Khalili's mother got sick. And then the couple's relationship, quote, ended, end quote. Mr. Al-Hassani applied to naturalize. And it appears that Mr. Al-Hassani knew that he might have naturalization issues because he was in a bigamous or polygamous situation. And bigamy and polygamy aren't allowed under U.S. immigration law. So Mr. Al-Hassani explained to USCIS that he was in a bind. He couldn't divorce his first wife in Morocco because to do so, Ms. Khalili would need to allege specific untrue things, like that Mr. Al-Hassani had been cruel to her. And he couldn't divorce his second wife because it was too dangerous for him to try to do so in Syria, and because New Jersey, where he lived, didn't even recognize that that second marriage was a lawful marriage, so he couldn't divorce from it in New Jersey. Because again, he was married to another person when he married his second wife. Why couldn't he divorce his first wife in the Dirty Jurors, though? Asked the Third Circuit. Discussed in a bit. Also, he didn't want either wife to face the stigma of official divorce in the countries that his wives lived in, explained Mr. Al-Hassani to USCIS. 
So yes, USCIS did indeed deny his naturalization application when he applied in 2017. Despite, quote, candidly describing the circumstances of his two marriages, end quote, USCIS concluded that bigamy, or specifically the practice of polygamy, is a bar to good moral character. And you need that during the statutory time period predating a naturalization application, usually five years. Polygamy also makes you inadmissible. The never cited to INA section 212A10A. Although to be fair, reading that statute really like for the first time, it describes someone who is, quote, coming to the U.S. to practice polygamy, end quote. Which isn't really what Mr. Al-Hassani was doing, right? He had already done it. Interesting. Anyway, USCIS denied. Mr. Al-Hassani sued, after of course filing his N336 appeal. And the district court said that yes, indeed, he lacked good moral character under the good moral character statute at INA section 101F, and that in the alternative, USCIS reasonably interpreted the good moral character statute, which was ambiguous on this issue. Interesting. The Third Circuit affirmed the district court. Mr. Al-Hassani is not going to become a citizen. INA section 101F contains the statutory bars to a good moral character finding. But really, those are just examples. Anything can qualify, kind of, under the catch-all provision at that statute. Naturalization applicants, like Mr. Al-Hassani, again, must show that they had good moral character during the five years immediately preceding the filing of their naturalization application. That's what the naturalization statute says. And ah, yes, yes. While the Good Moral Character Statute references INA Section 212A10A, which in turn has that prospective language, the regulations implementing the Good Moral Character Bars to Naturalization, DHS's own regs, state that USCIS should find good moral character lacking, quote, if during the statutory period the individual has practiced or is practicing polygamy, or willfully failed or refused to support dependence, end quote. That's 8 CFR section 316.10b2ix and b3i. And it kind of seems like DHS is trying to rewrite the statute with those regs. That's just me. This case is even more interesting than I initially thought. It seems to be about Chevron deference. Is DHS correctly interpreting that polygamy statute and good moral character statute? Usually, yes, federal courts must defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation of an ambiguous statute. Unless, of course, the Supreme Court overturns Chevron next term. But naturalization's a bit different because there is a statute expressly giving federal district court judges de novo review of naturalization eligibility. Federal judges are deciding it themselves. Deference doesn't really make sense, then, on any issue, even statutory interpretation. So argued Mr. Al-Hassani. And da! The Third Circuit punted because it believed even without deference or considerations of deference, Mr. Al-Hassani loses. No heady administrative law ruling this week. Polygamy, said the court is the, quote, state or practice of having more than one spouse simultaneously, end quote. Looking at dictionary definitions of the term when the word was used in immigration law, going all the way back to 1891, the Third Circuit was satisfied that it describes, quote, anyone who is legally married to more than one person at once, end quote. 
As to use of the word practice in the statute and regulations, it, quote, connotes doing something intentionally rather than passively, mistakenly, or through an oversight, end quote. Okay, but, and thank God really, Mr. Al-Hassani made my argument. He argued that the statute at INA section 212A1A is, quote, forward-looking, concerned with behavior after an individual arrives in the United States, not before, end quote. And yeah, that's what the statute says, right? Not only that, apparently the statute changed since 1891, the immigration statute that is, to be more forward-looking than it once was. Strong arguments. Rejected. The Third Circuit reads both the old and current inadmissibility provision as applying to someone who believes in and observes the practice of polygamy in the U.S., or who, of course, intends to do so when asking to come into the country at a consulate post abroad. Addressing specifically that phrase that appears to be forward-looking in the statute, it seems like the Third Circuit agrees that it is indeed forward-looking. It just believes that Mr. al-Hassani and people who do what he did satisfy it. As he came to the U.S. to practice polygamy, because when he came and remained in the U.S., he was literally practicing polygamy just by existing and being married to two people at once. That he wasn't here in the U.S. with either wife is of no consequence. Important to the court, he chose to remain married to his wives. Maybe it would have been different if he really couldn't have divorced either of them, but actually he managed to divorce his first wife in New Jersey while this whole matter was on appeal to the Third Circuit. So that shows that he could have and he didn't, to the court. And remember, he even brought his first wife to the U.S. for a time. To the extent that very old BIA precedent might actually help Mr. Al-Hassani, the Third Circuit rejected it, as it believed the statute was clear, and therefore Congress's intent clear, without need of the BIA's very old assistance. And that old decision is Matter of G, by the way, from 1953. You know it's an old BIA decision when there's only one letter in the name. The Third Circuit noted that now, really, all Mr. Al-Hassani needs to do is wait five years post his 2022 divorce to apply to naturalize again. But wait, he must. And if you're wondering like I was... If you're curious, as you must be... The Third Circuit notes in a footnote that the Seventh Circuit did hold in the 2006 decision O'Sullivan v. USCIS that Chevron deference does not apply in the naturalization context. So there you go. And that is Al-Hassani v. DHS. Next is Lynn V. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on September 1st, 2023. This case is about asylum. Mr. Lin is from China and came to the United States in 2012. He timely applied for asylum and he had his merits hearing seven years later. He explained that in 2001, he had been in a relationship with a woman in China, but they were not married. Police suspected she was pregnant, came looking for her, and beat up Mr. Lin at his family's home and roughed up the family home. His girlfriend was indeed pregnant, gave birth shortly thereafter, and the couple went into hiding. 
but when authorities found out, they forcibly inserted an IUD into his girlfriend and fined the couple a bunch of money for failing to register their son and for having a child out of wedlock. And apparently they couldn't then marry until they paid the fine. Mr. Lin continued that 10 years later, he began practicing Christianity at an underground house church that was not affiliated with the Chinese government. The police showed up at one such meeting in 2012 and arrested Mr. Lin and others, locking him up and interrogating him. He was beaten but escaped three days later because his parents and girlfriend paid a bribe to a guard. Mr. Lin fled China less than a month later and claims that police have been looking for him ever since. He even declined to attend his mother's funeral in China in 2017, he testified, because he had been warned that police were looking for him. He testified that he's been baptized and considers himself a, quote, real Christian, end quote. An immigration judge found Mr. Lin credible, but the IJ didn't believe that Mr. Lin had suffered past persecution and further believed that Mr. Lin could relocate in China to avoid the harms he fears. The BIA affirmed, but the Sixth Circuit sent it back. Because to begin, even a, quote, single incident is sufficient to constitute persecution, if severe, end quote. Did Mr. Lin suffer past persecution? Or that is to say, was the agency wrong to determine he didn't? That is the first question. Of course, in addition to the severity of harm, past persecution requires that the harm be on account of a protected ground, the nexus requirement. And on Nexus, Mr. Lin and applicants like him are in a bit of luck because Congress amended the law under the H.W. Bush administration to expressly hold that opposition to China's one-child policy constitutes a cognizable particular social group for asylum purposes. Paraphrasing the law a bit there. But that's the only specific statute defining a protected ground or even singling out a country, if I'm not mistaken. Let's get more of that, shall we? 30 years is too long to wait. Here, though, the Sixth Circuit agreed that what happened in the past didn't cut it. The fine wasn't so bad, for example, as to threaten Mr. Lin's life or freedom, and his son was eventually registered in China. Nothing else seemed to have occurred on the issue of family planning opposition during Mr. Lin's time in China, and the Sixth Circuit agreed that the experience all those years ago was not past persecution. But would Mr. Lin nevertheless be at risk of persecution if he returned to China? Even if he didn't benefit from the burden shifting that occurs if a non-citizen can establish a past persecution claim? The immigration judge believed that Mr. Lin did have a subjective fear of returning to China, that he really didn't want to go because he was scared. Whether evidence shows objectively, however, that a non-citizen will then suffer the harm feared isn't a crazy high burden. But to satisfy the objective fear standard and get asylum, the fear can't be speculative. The Sixth Circuit agreed that here, too, there wasn't a sufficient claim based on Mr. Lin's opposition to China's family planning policies. And after all, if I'm not mistaken, and it's not in this decision, I believe that China no longer has the one-child policy. But what about the underground house church Christian stuff? Well, Oil argued before the Sixth Circuit, among other things, that the record didn't show that the government would remember or learn about Mr. Lin or care about him because there are lots of Chinese individuals practicing Christianity unlawfully in China. 
but to the court, quote, this argument favors the general over the specific. The record establishes that officials already have discovered Mr. Lin's religious activities and that they have sustained a long-term interest in him, end quote. For example, the record shows that police were asking questions about him as recently as 2017, not so long ago in Petition for Review World. Quote, that local government officials sustained an interest in Mr. Lin so many years after his initial detention strongly indicates that they would continue to pursue their interest in him if he were to return, end quote. Other testimony of record supported this conclusion. And even if his detention in 2012, standing alone, didn't equate to persecution, quote, it remains probative of the individualized risk of harm that would befall him upon his return to China, end quote. Love the quote. That is, past harm, even if it's not past persecution, is very relevant for the well-founded fear of future persecution and the objective fear analysis. Wait a minute, though. The IJ also found that Mr. Lin could relocate in China and avoid any persecution he feared. But the problem is for the government. Under the regulations, where a non-citizen has a well-founded fear of the foreign government itself, relocation is presumptively unreasonable. Because, right, the government runs the whole country? DHS presented evidence that the Sixth Circuit reads as bleak for underground Christians, but also that shows varying degrees of enforcement against them throughout China. So maybe there's a place? To the Sixth Circuit, though, while DHS's evidence, quote, suggests that some areas are safe from persecution, it says nothing of whether Mr. Lin's relocation would be reasonable, end quote. To rebut a well-founded fear, relocation must be both possible and reasonable to expect the non-citizen to do in that circumstance. Under the regulations, 8 CFR section 210.13b3, that analysis, the reasonableness of relocation, requires consideration of many things, including, quote, whether the applicant would face other serious harm in the place of suggested relocation, any ongoing civil strife within the country, administrative, economic, or judicial infrastructure, geographical limitations, and social and cultural constraints, such as age, gender, health, and social and familial ties, end quote. That is a lot of factors on the table to work with. Thank you, regulations. The State Department reports, not always the most detailed, say little on these things for underground Christians in China. At a minimum here, the Sixth Circuit does not think that the BIA gave relocation the proper analysis it deserved and required, as again, it reads Mr. Lin as likely establishing an objectively reasonable well-founded fear based on his practice of underground house church Christianity. Simply holding that individuals who practice Christianity underground are, quote, safer in some areas of China, end quote, will not cut it. Nor does that finding really even address reasonableness of relocation at all. It's more about potential ability. Gotta analyze the, quote, socio-cultural considerations, end quote, among other things when determining the reasonableness of relocation. To really hammer this point in. At the end of the day, the Sixth Circuit isn't sure the BIA considered everything it must, so it sent the matter back. Denial of Convention Against Torture Protection affirmed, but asylum's going back, in what appears to be a decently favorable posture for Mr. Lin. Meaning, congratulations to Henry Zhang for petitioner. And that is Lin V. Garland. 
We conclude the week with Flores Vasquez v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 31st, 2023. This case is about crimes involving moral turpitude. Is Oregon Revised Statute Section 163.190 one of them? Because that's what Mr. Flores Vasquez was convicted of in 2015, the crime of, quote, menacing, constituting domestic violence, end quote, a misdemeanor. He's been in the U.S. without authorization since 1991, but if the conviction is a CIMT, he can't even apply for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B in immigration court, even though he has U.S. citizen children and a lawful permanent resident spouse. Apparently, he threatened his wife with a bread knife. And for the crime, he was, quote, sentenced to four weekends in jail, end quote. Quite the weird sentence. Also, one year of domestic violence classes and a two-year restraining order. An immigration judge held that the conviction was a CIMT. Not surprising, because the BIA said the exact same thing on this exact statute in 2019 in the decision Matter of JGP. See? Newer BIA decision, three letters in the case name. But here, the Ninth Circuit majority does not agree. Matter of JGP is not good law in the Ninth Circuit. Because, of course, the categorical approach applies. Meaning that the court isn't deciding whether threatening one's wife with a bread knife is a CIMT, but rather whether the least bad conduct criminalized by the Oregon statute is morally turpitudinous. Under Oregon case law, quote, the material elements of the offense of menacing are 1. Intentionally, 2. Attempting, 3. By word or conduct, 4. To place another person in fear of imminent serious physical injury, end quote. That mental state of intentionally doing the act will likely satisfy the CIMT definition. But see, quote, the Oregon menacing statute does not require that the intended victim experience any actual fear, end quote. It has long been the case in the Ninth Circuit, and even with the BIA, that simple assault is not a CIMT. Rather, an assault-type crime must involve an aggravating factor to put it into the realm of moral depravity that CIMTs forbid. The Oregon menacing statute here was more akin to crimes that the Ninth Circuit has not deemed a CIMT, explained the court, rather than the ones that the Ninth Circuit has. For example, in Ladder Singh v. Holder, the Ninth Circuit held that California assault under California Penal Code Section 422 was a CIMT, in part because the crime required that the defendant's, quote, threat be so unequivocal, unconditional, immediate, and specific that it caused the victim to be in sustained fear for his or her own safety or the safety of an immediate family member, end quote. Those were sufficiently aggravating factors to an assault crime, said the Ninth Circuit. Here, in contrast, though, no fear from the victim is required at all. And in the Ninth Circuit, quote, the element of actual inflicted fear is necessary to determine that a crime categorically involves moral turpitude, end quote. At least when we're talking assault-type crimes. So if a criminal statute doesn't require an injury or intent to injure, and doesn't actually require that the victim suffer fear, it's probably not going to be a CIMT in the Ninth Circuit. It's just not morally depraved enough. 
Oregon case law gives some examples. For example, Oregon has prosecuted someone under this statute who was, quote, shining a laser beam onto the forehead of an elderly couple who are unaware of the beam, end quote. They didn't even know. Not the best thing I've ever heard, but also not morally turpitudinous conduct, explained the court. The Ninth Circuit believes that this actually aligns with BIA precedent, too. Judge Baker, sitting by designation from the United States Court of International Trade, dissented. But it means. Congratulations to Jonathan C. Gonzalez for petitioner. And some more things caught my eye from the Ninth. It seems that the immigration judge also denied Mr. Flores Vasquez's alternative request for post-conclusion voluntary departure under INA Section 240BB, which would have at least avoided a removal order if granted and cancellation of removal had been denied. It seems that in doing so, the IJ relied on the police report of this menacing incident. But as the Ninth Circuit explained in Alcarez Enriquez v. Garland, and as I went hog-wild discussing in that summary on episode 73, if I recall, before relying on a hearsay police report in the Ninth Circuit, quote, the government is required to make a good-faith effort to present a witness before relying on the witness's affidavit, end quote. Gotta bring in the cop, or at least try to. Great stuff to reiterate for the non-citizen bar. And perhaps more astounding, and in an insane amount of frustration for me, the Ninth Circuit vacated its monster-bad-for-non-citizens decision of Rivera-Vega v. Garland this week. That decision was about reinstatement when there's an adjustment of status application pending before USCIS, the retroactivity of the permanent bar at INA Section 212A9C, the right to counsel, reasonable fear interviews, and a lot more. It was very bad for non-citizens, and that summary took me forever to do because it was so complicated. And you can listen to it on episode 115. Or not, because now it's no more, because the parties jointly moved the Ninth Circuit to vacate its decision. Incredible stuff. And that is Flores Vasquez v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, Feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, or send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M, Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.